Today is the 30th of December, over two weeks since Bethlehem Village, one week since Johnny Graham's carol service jacket earned him even more admirers. It was noticed and commented on, Johnny, all positive, two thumbs up. A mere five days since Christmas morning. Seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? We're stuck in that kind of strange period between Christmas and New Year. Exams are coming, work has restarted for most of us, and we move into another month, another year. But the trees are still up, the reeds are still on the doors, and the Yankee Candle still burns away with that rich smell of cinnamon. Even the giant Homoousia sign surrounded by fairy lights is still up in the church. Sure, the reason that we've put them up, the trees, the reeds, the giant signs, Christmas Day has come and gone. But when we come to today's passage, which most of us, I presume, would associate with Easter rather than Christmas, remember that the resurrection is only possible because of that first Christmas. Even though Christmas Day has come and gone, the effects of that first Christmas the events that that first Christmas put in motion still affect us today. God dying on a cross, God rising again from the dead. These things could only happen because God came in the flesh. Spirit can't bleed, flesh can. The Bible is not an easy book to believe. There are things in it that I think we are to take seriously, requires to wrestle with. I genuinely believe that it takes nothing less than God himself to open our eyes to see Christ in scripture. You might hear fantastic apologists who draw on philosophy, archaeology, and history to prove that the Bible is true. We thank God sincerely for these folks who present us with evidence that what the Bible says about places, times, kings and queens, and so on, is true. The Bible is not like the Book of Mormon that makes bizarre claims about an Israeli tribe going to America, a claim that is absolutely debunked through DNA. The Bible is not like the Jehovah's Witnesses who change their publications so to match failed prophets, uh, failed prophetic dates. As Christians, we can believe that the Bible is trustworthy and true, because the Bible is the Word of God. But why would we presume that the Bible is easy to believe? If a book reflects an author's mind, we would expect a great mind to author a book that would require frequent and in-depth study. Just because some things in the Bible are not easy to believe does not make them false. When I read a physics book and think about how we are moving through space at over 66,000 miles per hour, I'm astounded, absolutely astounded, at how God upholds that with the word of his power. Just because it's difficult to believe that we are traveling at 66,000 miles per hour right now 
or sitting still. Just because it's hard to believe does not make it false. At the end of the day, we are confronted with multiple claims in Scripture that requires belief. We are confronted with miracles that we are required to believe. The Bible is self-aware. Miracles are are recorded for that very reason, because they are miracles. If you go through Mark's Gospel, and I know a lot of you have over the last year, we have been confronted with multiple miracles. Multiple times people are amazed at what Jesus is doing. These weren't ignorant or stupid people. They might not have been indoctrinated with what we consider to be truth in 2018. But they weren't stupid. To give a bit of credit to the folk who lived 2,000 years ago, they didn't need the Enlightenment to tell them that virgins do not give birth, blind people do not see, deaf people do not hear, lame people do not walk, and definitely, dead men do not rise from the grave. To believe that the Bible records these things accurately, not as parables, not as analogies, but actual historical events, requires faith. To believe that these things actually happened is, as Paul says, to the world, foolishness. But for Paul, the hinge of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Miracles in general, and the resurrection in particular, are of first importance to Paul. The resurrection is not a take-it-or-leave-it doctrine. It's not something like baptism that we can agree to disagree on. The miracle of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is something that we must believe. Listen again to Paul. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This presumes two things. Firstly, it presumes that Paul was preaching about the resurrection. Secondly, it presumes that his hearer's faith was based in what Paul was preaching about the resurrection. Without the resurrection, both preaching and faith are in vain. That was true then, and it's just as true on this last Sunday in 2018. If the resurrection did not take place, then everything we do in this place is absolute If you were at the evening service a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Christ's baptism on the cross, you might remember where the reading ended. Jesus is dead. He's buried in a borrowed grave, wrapped in a linen shroud. We might see an echo of Christmas when Christ was sleeping in a borrowed manger, wrapped in linen bands. Anyway, a huge stone sits in front of a large family tomb 
multiple benches for the bodies to be laid on. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, and Salome are eyewitnesses to the whole thing. Jesus is really dead. Jesus is really buried. We know from Mark 6.3 that one of the Marys is Jesus' mother. She had at least four other sons, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, as well as daughters. But then we reach today's reading in Mark 16. The Sabbath was not an appropriate time for Jews to visit graves, so we read, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Anointing the dead was a way that Jews showed respect for the dead. So they go very early, as soon as they can, to anoint the body. And just note that these women were not expecting a resurrection. They saw with their own eyes Christ was crucified, really dead, and really buried. That's why they were bringing spices to anoint the corpse, not to welcome the resurrected. In fact, their main concern seems to be with who's going to move the big, heavy stone covering the tomb in verse 3. But then we see the first glimpse of the miracle in verse 4. The tomb is open. They They enter into the big tomb, and they see something that they were definitely not expecting. They see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. I love here how Mark doesn't give the reader anything to be distracted by. We know in Matthew that the young man was an angel, but Mark instead keeps things very, very factual. He simply reports exactly what the eyewitnesses see. Very factual. Imagine the first reports, especially as they were women, who under Jewish law had virtually no credibility in a court of law. It was like picking shepherds to announce the birth of the king. Not necessarily the most credible witnesses. Women, what did you see? A young man. What was he doing? Sitting. Where? On the right side. What was he wearing? A white robe. Surprising, certainly. Frightening, most likely. Especially if you were around the graves in the darkness of dawn. Anything there impossible. Absolutely not. The women are alarmed. I don't think that that really captures the sense of what they felt. They were amazed, shocked, terrified, afraid. What's the first thing that the young man, what's the first thing that he says? Do not be alarmed. If you skip down to verse 8, it seems that the women remained quite alarmed, for fear and astonishment had seized them. But here in verse 6, the young man keeps on with the matter of factness. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. True, they were seeking him. Again, if you think about it, not great detective work. That's why they had showed up at his grave. They were seeking Jesus, a real man of Nazareth, a real place. The young man continues, who was crucified. Absolutely. We know from 1540 that these three women saw Jesus crucified. So far, the young man hasn't done or said anything 
that isn't matter of fact. He knows they're freaked out, and he knows who they're seeking, and he knows how he died. So far, everything is entirely believable. There is nothing to cast doubt on what the women have reported. But then there's the question of what has happened to Jesus. The young man in verse 6 matter-of-factly states, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The entirety of the Christian faith stands on those three words. He has risen. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man, is announced as matter-of-factly as everything else. Where's the proof? See the place where they laid him. The tomb is empty. Verse 7, he continues, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. These women, legally the most non-credible witnesses at that time, with such little faith themselves that they went to anoint the dead body of their teacher. The teacher who had repeatedly told them that he would die and rise again. These women are tasked with telling the men that Jesus has indeed risen. Not a new message. It was just as Jesus had told them. What's the response? Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If you listen to the testimony of these women, and never mind the cultural embargoes that made them sadly unreliable witnesses. If you were to listen to the testimony of these women, what would you think? Crazy? Overcome with grief? Telling the truth? So far, what is there in this account that is unbelievable? No matter if you're an atheist, an agnostic, a liberal, an evangelical, there is nothing in this account that is unbelievable. Even if you're an atheist, it is entirely possible that three women who saw a man, a man called Jesus of Nazareth crucified showed up at his grave where a stone had been laid and did indeed see a young man who was dressed in a white robe and was sitting on the right-hand side of an empty tomb. The women have simply reported what they saw. There is no reason to doubt anything in the women's report. Obviously, they did eventually overcome their fear and told someone, because we have this eyewitness account. When we read those few verses of Mark, we don't have any real reason to doubt what is written. What we as Christians have to contend with is the question of what the young man said, specifically those three words. We can possibly explain away he's not here. We can possibly explain away see the place where they laid him. But what we cannot explain away without a miracle are the words in verse 6, he has risen. 
that is the miracle in the otherwise unusual, but humanly not, uh, humanly speaking, not impossible account. He has risen. That's the bit that we need the grace of God to open our eyes to see that is just as true as the rest. Jesus Christ has risen. As Christians, that is what we preach, and as Christians, that is what we believe. We believe the testimony of Scripture. We believe that Jesus Christ has risen. The closing of Mark, verses 9 to 20, you might notice have been disputed as being an original part of Mark's Gospel. You might see there's a footnote explaining that they were not included in the earliest manuscripts. That is not saying that it's a mistake to include them in Scripture. We're not saying that these are not inspired or any less the Word of God. All that means is that they probably had a different author than Mark. There are reasons to include it. There's reasons to footnote it. Both are valid, I think. If we do stop at verse 8, think about where that leaves the reader. Like the disciples... Peter, the women, we have heard this testimony. We are called to believe the first witnesses who heard Jesus firsthand telling them that he would be buried and raised. Like them, we're called to have faith. We're called to believe the testimony of firstly Christ and also the young man sitting in the empty tomb. Like them, we are called to bear witness to the risen Christ. Because if he has not risen, then no one is risen from the dead, and we have no hope in this world. If Mark ends at verse 8, we don't actually lose anything. We have fully fleshed out eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ in Matthew, and Luke, and John, and Acts, and Revelation. Be in no doubt the risen Christ. In Mark itself, we have the transfiguration that gives the glimpse of the glorified Christ. If we take verses 9 to 20 as an epilogue inspired by other parts of Scripture, it still underlines the need for us to believe the testimony of those eyewitnesses. We have Mary Magdalene's testimony in verse 9 that sounds a lot like a summary of John 20. Sadly, those who heard her testimony would not believe. We have the similar story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus from Luke 24. But those who heard their testimony would not believe. In verse 14, we have similar accounts to Luke 24 where Christ appears to them and rebukes them because they had not believed the testimony those who saw him after he had risen. In verse 15, we have something similar to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And on a side note, you might hear that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved as a proof text that baptism is necessary for salvation. That's a gross mishandling of the text. We read in just the next clause, whoever does not believe will be condemned, not whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. 
as saying that uh, not just people who are baptized will be saved, we must be united by faith to Christ. If we're not united to faith uh, to Christ by faith, even if we're baptized, we will be condemned. The signs in verses 17 and 18 were for the early New Testament church, even though you might have seen on the BBC News uh, during the year, some churches in America still practice snake handling, and sadly, some pastors have been killed as a result. In Acts 5, 8, 16, and 19, we see demons cast out. In Acts 2, 10, and 19, we hear new tongues spoken. In Acts 19 and 28, we read about apostolic healings. The sign about drinking poison is probably from an extra source. In verse 19, about the, the ascension, we read something very similar to the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Verse 20 is very similar to what we read in Acts 4. The central message of Mark is underlined by this ending. That we, each one of us, is called to believe the testimony of Scripture testimony of those first eyewitness accounts of the miraculous happening. We are called as Christians to believe the message of God, that God himself entered human history as Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, that he was crucified for our sin, and that three days later, he physically rose from the and if we are united to him by faith, we are not condemned, but we are saved from the reality of hell. I don't know where some of us stand this morning, but if you're an atheist or an agnostic or you're 17 and sitting on the fence wondering if any of this is true, I'm not going to appeal to you to come to more Bible studies, more prayer meetings, although you're very welcome. But what I am going to appeal to you with is logic. If, if the Bible is true, as Christians for thousands of years have claimed, and you in your atheism or your agnosticism or indecision, if you are genuinely seeking the truth, don't take my word for it. Take up a copy of God's word and read it for yourself. The Bible makes claims that you will not read in the brilliance of Plato or Nietzsche or Zizek or Marx. As you read it, ask yourself why you will not believe the testimony of these women. Even though we live in a world where virgins do not give birth and men do not rise from the dead, what is your basis for making the a priori decision to reject the possibility that what you think the Bible says is false when you, yourself, have not read it firsthand and heard how unbelievable even these miracles were to those who wrote the scripture? It makes a claim that you will not find in the Quran or the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or the Prophet, 
in Scripture, you will find the real Word of God, not fairy tales. You will find a real man, Jesus, from a real place, Nazareth. And he doesn't promise you fluff. He promises you something real. Not necessarily answers to all of your questions. Not certainty in all of your doubts. But he does promise you rest for your soul. Real rest for your real soul. With the real promise that whoever comes to him, he will never turn away. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, we find the truth. We thank you that in it, we hear you speaking. Lord, as we come to 2019, may each one of us truly be people of the book, people of your word, people who care what you have to say, people who listen to your voice people who believe that there is no there is salvation in none other except Christ Jesus born of the virgin crucified dead, buried and raised again Lord we thank you for his life, for his death and that in his resurrection we have the eternal hope of eternal life in his name we pray